Welcome to the October episode of Jazz Talk Seattle. My name is Josh. And my name is Max. And today we're here with bassist extraordinaire Michael Barnett. Michael has been a part of the jazz scene in Seattle for at least as long as I can remember, although that's not saying too much in comparison <laughs> to him. Um, so how long have you actually been here, Michael? We moved here in 97. Okay. So it's, it's several years, many years. I must have been a small kid at that point. <laughs> Very cool. So we brought Michael here today to kind of talk about what he's done in the realm of the jazz world and uh, just kind of get his take on a few different things. Um, one of the things you're most well known for, historically speaking, is your work with Louis Bellison. Is that correct? That's one of the people I worked with. Okay. Uh, let's kind of talk about that as a start. How did that yeah. happen? Uh, Louis, I was living in Wisconsin, very near Chicago, and played quite a bit in Chicago with various people down there. And uh, Louis came in frequently to the Jazz Showcase and other things around the area, too. Jazz Showcase is a venue that's been there for quite a while, right? Uh, 70 years, I think. Yeah. I think I, I visited that place when I was there last yeah, it's year. Had, it's had several, three or four at least, locations. different locations. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, Louis would come in and play with the quartet generally. And um, his bassists were, for a long time, was John Hurd, and he, George Olivier worked with him some. And as you probably are aware, Louis was married to Pearl Bailey. The, That's another thing I wanted to talk singer. about. Yeah. And uh, Pearl played with this pianist, uh, Larry Novak, the Chicago pianist, a lot, and generally with De Vivier. And that that was they were kind of they swapped back and forth between working with just Louis quartets and with Pearl and Louis. And anyway, uh, I subbed for John Hurd a couple of times when Louis was in town when he couldn't make it for whatever reason. And after a while, he just started calling me, and I did the showcase with Louis several times, and we did some little road trips to like Louisville and a couple other places. Oh, did cool. quartet gigs with. Uh, Larry Novak, generally speaking, who's still living in Chicago, marvelous pianist. You oh, wow. Don't know him. You should uh, avail yourself of him one way or another. Anyway, and also uh, with Pearl, I traveled a good deal, and she used Larry and usually Louis if he wasn't occupied otherwise. Very cool. Yeah, it was fun. So as a drummer, um, obviously I'm aware of who Louis Belson is, but... Uh, Perhaps you can explain better, since you actually played with him. Um, who is Louis Belson, for those who don't know? Wow, that's a, Louis was a lot of things. <laughs> he, you know, he's from uh, uh, Moline, Davenport, the area of, of Illinois, down there on the river. Mm -hmm. And he, I, he, his brother, uh, I can't think of his brother's name, was bassist. No, oh, I didn't And know uh, they, they played with all kinds of local bands around there and uh, from the time he was quite young and then he was on the road with various and sundry big bands as, as a young man and became very well known obviously and spent I've, I've forgotten how many years he was with Ellington but he was in the Ellington band for quite a while and wrote some really good charts for Ellington the Hawk was a famous thing that Lee wrote and he was a extremely nice guy very personable and sweet and uh, a thoughtful guy. I liked Louis very much. Very cool. Yeah. What was being on the road with him like? 
it was, it was smooth. It was nothing. There were no problems. We 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 did a lot of driving. We didn't fly around much. Much. We just do road trips to wherever and play whatever the gig entailed, the weekend or a few days here and there, that sort of thing. And it was always a pleasure to deal with. He was just completely professional and accommodating in every way. So there, are, there are a lot of. Um stories that maybe wouldn't appear on a podcast uh, when you're talking to people who have played with people of, of note in the jazz world oftentimes and um, so there are no stories kind of like that that with Louie he was just kind of a straight ahead oh nice no, guy. there was never any difficulty whatsoever with oh, Louie cool. in, any, in any manner he was very cool. utterly professional and, and, and took good care to make sure we the we, uh, sidemen for want of a better term were well taken care of too. Very cool. Yeah, sounds like a great guy. He wasn't. He was a very good guy. And he played with pretty much anyone who everybody. Pretty, yeah. yeah, everyone. I mean, he was one of the people. Um, we did a gig with um, with Red Norvo, hmm. which was really interesting. Who's really a interesting historical figure. I'm not familiar with him. You're not? No. The, the great vibes player, xylophone player. He started out as a xylophone player. Probably he pretty much be invented the vibes. <laughs> really? Phenomenal musician. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, there we go. I there learned something go new. Uh, he also, maybe I'm wrong, but seems to be the first person to really have popularized two bass drums. I believe he, I believe he sort of invented that along with, was it Ludwig or... Did he? Oh yeah, he was uh, president of Ludwig or something, something like that. Like that yeah. yeah, he had the. Uh, they were, uh, yeah, I, some connection with Ludwig yeah. drums. Yeah, and I believe that that, that was a, a project that they, the drum company and Louis, undertook. Interesting to, to build these things. Yeah, but there's quite a bit of history there. If anyone wants to look up the history of Ludwig drums and Louis Belson, uh, something that he did with you in small. He, he well, yeah, he always used a double bass drum set. It would get it would get pretty, uh, could get rowdy from time to time. Which of course, tempos nowadays is typically found in metal and yeah, in uh, that, that, that's, that's that's an music like that. Version. <laughs> and now almost no jazz players play with a double bass drum. It's I almost don't unheard know, of. I don't know anybody now. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, how cool is that? So was he married to Pearl Bailey? Yeah, they were married for many, many years. Okay, and then you also did some playing with with her. Yep, did quite a bit of playing with with Pearl. So can you tell us who who she was and kind of what her story is? Well, Pearl was raised in the showbiz family. Her brother was uh, Bill Robinson, I believe it was. Yes, that's right, Bill Bojangles Robinson, and he was a famous tap dancer. And they they were an act together in probably black vaudeville in the beginning, but uh, did movies and all sorts of things. And Pearl became uh, uh, one of the biggest cabaret stars, you know, for one of a better uh, again a better description. Very cool. And theater too. She did a lot of uh, Broadway shows and movies and everything else. She was a phenomenon. And her brother is. Uh Kind of known as one of the godfathers of tap dancing, correct? Yes, uh, yes, that would be. Yeah, true. he kind of invented a, a bunch of moves. And I've got his name wrong. It was Bill Bailey. Bill because, Bailey, yeah. Because that was the, she used to do that song with him. Uh, I looked something up, and it looks like he might have invented the moonwalk. 
Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I know about the moon <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that. that <laughs> I don't he know. was responsible for that. I don't know if that's true or that. not, but there is a video of him doing the moonwalk a long time ago. <laughs> I was able well to find. before Michael Jackson, for sure. Yeah, definitely before Michael Jackson made it famous. Good heavens. Cool. That's a strange tie. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah, it is. <laughs> One of the things, work, working with Pearl and Louis, I played with the, 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 Louis always had a quartet with a saxophone player, and I got to play with a lot of really good saxophone players. Don Menza was oh, wow. there yeah. uh, mo- a lot of the time, and uh, uh, um, the, uh, Ted Nash. Oh, nice. You know, he's with the, uh, the, the, the Marcellus group, the Lincoln Center Band, has mm-hmm. been for years. Good composer, great. And he played, we, we did gigs with him when he was, I think, only about 22, 23 years old. And he was really an accomplished player already. Sounds like it. And this is all in Chicago? Yeah, kind of the, that or was based, a, in based Chicago? around Chicago. Cool. So how did you, what's your story before you were in Chicago? How did you end up there? I mean, how did you get started playing the bass? I guess we should start there. Well, I started playing the bass really when I was in high school. I just sort of, my dad was a a high school music teacher, and I played whatever he was out of uh, that year forever. I played every kind of brass (laughs) instrument. And uh, I started started studying piano when I was very young, so I always played piano. That helps. Yeah, quite a bit. It used to help. (laughs) Piano playing is not up to snuff. But uh, I, I... we ha- we had a lot of music around the house of all kinds of re- recordings and everything. I listened to everything imaginable from as long as I could remember, and I loved the sound of the bass. And I particularly got interested in Milt Hinton. I had some records about, with Milt Hinton, with Al Cohn and Zoot Sims and all kinds of people. And I just liked that sound and that feel so much that that was that was really kind of my inspiration. It made me want to do that, make that noise. Hmm, very cool. So I started playing. And worked my first gigs when I was 14, 15, around where we lived at that time, which was down in southwest Missouri. Played in Joplin, Missouri, and at some roadhouses and things. Hmm. Who are some of your uh, biggest bass player influences? Well, Milt Hinton, as I said. Uh, right. But, of course, Ray Brown, and on and on and on. Mingus, I loved Mingus. and Scott LaFarge turned everybody's head around, including me. Yep. And De Vivier was always one of my favorites. He was such mm. a stylistically open and and uh, accommodating is not that's not the right word. He was he was open to all music music musical experiences. I I suppose so. He wasn't at all. Uh, he played in every kind of genre and and played beautifully in all of them. He was a great cool. accompanist for singers and whatever there was. George took care of it. He. That's one thing I really learned from him, uh, spending time with him, was whatever the gig is, take care of the gig. Cool. Well, not to go too into names and playing where and with who and all that stuff, but correct me if I'm wrong in any of these, but it sounds like you might have played with people like Mel Torme, Nita O'Day, uh, Carmen McRae, people like that. Yeah, that's a it's a long list, particularly of singers. Joe Williams. Oh, wow. Uh Lorez Alexandria, one of my favorites, and Lurleen Hunter. I don't, you might not know her. She was a very good singer. Died young, wonderful. Her name sounds familiar. And um, Sheila Jordan. Oh wow. 
And how did you get hooked up with all these people? Just it's just sort of networking among the pianists, mainly the good the pianists that I worked that worked with that were known to be really good accompanists for singers. The word would get out and through those kind of connections. And also, I had the, I had the gig I had at the Playboy in Lake Geneva, which was for years a major venue for all kinds of uh, acts, jazz, and otherwise. And a lot of great people came through there, and I played for most of them. I worked a lot. Worked first there with first time I worked with Billy Eckstein was there, and then I went on to play with him many times. Oh wow! Yeah, it was fun. Well. Uh, Sounds like you've played with quite a bit of different people. Um, do you have any stories, favorite stories of any gigs or tours or performances or anything? Oh, there are a lot of a lot of things that I remember. You can share more than or, one if you want. Maybe not quite so fondly. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, well, I remember one really fun trip with with Louis with the big band. We got on a bus and went way the heck up. The, Northern Michigan, someplace. It was an arduous trip, but it was fun. There were there were just there was all kinds of things. I used to love. I played with Von Freeman an awful lot, and I really loved playing with Von. He was exciting. one of the, the most exciting saxophone players I ever heard. I just loved him dearly. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, it's, and I, I've had a kind of a strange, I think, you know, I, it, it's a, a fortunate happenstance of being as old as I am. I, I, my, I've been around a long time, and, and my playing uh, experience ranges from very tratty, way back then, kind of players all to, I'm the only person alive, I'm sure, that actually played with Bud Freeman and Von Freeman. <laughs> you know, that's... Uh, that, Strange to think of. Huh. I played with Wild Bill Davison, the great uh, cornet player that was in all those Eddie Condon bands forever and ever. Tremendous player. Wow. Uh, another Midwest player, if I'm not mistaken. Wild Bill? Yeah. He's from Defiance, Ohio. I always yeah, thought okay. that was a, a remarkably appropriate place for Wild Bill to be from, Defiance, because he was, he was defiant. He was a for those listening Ferocious in Seattle, player. yeah, it seems like there's there are quite a few players that have come out of the Midwest that for some reason don't get the same, uh, their names don't get spread in the same depth as a lot of uh, New York or New Orleans players do, in, at least in the Seattle area, for some strange reason. Even modern players. I think that's true. I found that a lot of the Chicago players and people yeah. based around there, they don't really get as, as known out here for some strange reason. It is uh, It is. But the, true of Chicago players, you know, people like uh, uh, Ira Sullivan, it, it was known, but was never, never got the nationwide uh, notice that he should have. He's, you know, he's just, just a remarkable musician, trumpet and all the saxophones and flute and everything else. He's brilliant. Are and there? There were some others yeah. like that. Are there uh, some common tour circuits or, or anything that take place just in the Midwest? Might be oh. a reason for that, or I don't know. They're, that's kind of a good. That's a, I'm that's not a terribly question. familiar with the Midwest and its scene, honestly. Well, there was. You know, I, I lived in Kansas. Uh, one of the places I really began playing a lot was in Kansas City, but back in the uh, early '60s. Have been to Kansas City. That's a very cool city for yeah. jazz. And there was always a 
there was a kind of a uh, cross pollinization going on with uh, from the uh, from the old days from uh, Oklahoma, from Musco Muskogee and Oklahoma City. That's where the Motons started their bands, you know, which which led to the Basie bands. Mm -hmm. And Omaha was another place that people went back and forth, and there were people from there, and it was a yeah. There was a they used to call them territory bands. There were a lot of them. And interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So, at some point in 1997, <coughs> you came to Seattle. What brought you to town here? Actually, my wife's gig. She's a graphic designer, and she we were living in Wisconsin, as, as I mentioned earlier, in Lake Geneva. And she worked for a company there called TSR, which was the parent company of Dungeons and Dragons. And she did all <laughs> kinds of all things. And she did all <laughs> kinds of art for them, uh, from display pieces to posters to boxes, uh, book design, Holy tons cow. of stuff. And the TSR was bought out by a company, a local company, uh, Magic the Game. Uh, really? Yeah, Wizards <laughs> of the Coast. That was that was the, what they called the company at that time. Oh wow! So they they hired a, a whole lot of the artists that worked in Wisconsin. Or I offered them gigs out here. And we were ready to get out of Chicago, Wisconsin winters, I think, and came out here. And I like it here. I'm glad we did. Fascinating. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, just, uh, it just worked out that way. So, what was the change like coming to a new scene and establishing yourself here? It was, it was, it was hard. I have to say, I was at that when we moved here. I was still traveling an awful lot. I traveled with, with Peter Nero, the pianist, for about thirty years, actually. Can you tell and us a little bit about who he is before we depart yeah, from Peter I Nero? Should, oops, Peter is. Uh, been around for a long time. He first recorded in about, the first records I'm aware of were done in about 1957, 58, something like that. He's uh, studied, he was a prodigy pianist. He studied at Juilliard, classical chops, the real, the real thing. And he got, became infatuated with Art Tatum and that led him into the jazz racket. And he's a marvelous player. He's, he had a lot of, uh, of popular success. He uh, was on all the television shows all the time. He sold lots of kind of pop jazz records, they like to call them. He's a better pianist than he gets credit for. He's a genuine great improviser and he knows his craft like nobody's business. He's mm -hmm. a phenomenal musician. He still is at 86 or whatever it is. Wow. wow. Did he also direct uh, a symphony at one point? Yeah, he uh, he was the uh, conductor, the founding conductor of an orchestra called the Philly Pops. Oh wow! And we worked with them for. Uh, I I wasn't working p with Peter full time when they first started, but I ended up doing about twenty five years of concerts in Philadelphia with the Philly Pops. And between that, the Philly concerts and uh, other touring, I was gone half the time, particularly right when we first moved out here. Wow. That sounds like it could pose some challenges getting established in a new scene if you're. It was. Uh, it didn't. It didn't help. I was. I was gone a lot, uh, a whole bunch, and it, it. It was very hard for me to get a foot in the door. I. I picked up some gigs right away, and then I'd be gone, and. And it, it was. It, it was difficult. Mm -hmm. And besides, you know, I and I was used to playing virtually every night, either when I was traveling with Peter, I, I was working in Chicago by that time, and was down there three or four times a week. So I. That didn't happen when I came to Seattle. But I like it anyway, and a lot of good players here, and I love playing with them. 
So what were some of the biggest differences coming to Seattle? One nice difference was right before we'd moved out here, I bought a really nice new top coat, a wool, really good one. Never took it out of the closet after I moved out. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that very much. <laughs> okay. What about some differences in the music scene? <laughs> it's a, it's a different. Uh, it's different. Uh, I was there was there were a lot more venues in, around Chicago, and between Chicago and Milwaukee, there were a lot of places to play. And I you know I'd go to play at the Green Mill, and I might play play with Vaughn there or with Clifford Jordan if he came to town or. Uh, and Andy's the same sort of thing the Green Mill was I think I visited there when I was in town that was Al Capone's place is that correct yeah yeah, yep. yeah. and believe me they haven't cleaned it up since nope. Al Capone owned it <laughs> there was uh, some story I heard when I was there about there's like a booth that faces the window or something so that and there's a secret hatch that goes to a secret escape there are, route. There are all kinds of secret hatches. Around the place. <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a pretty funny place. They, you can, there's a a trap door, probably that's all too hmm. appropriate a name for it, behind the bar, and it goes down to all kinds of, I guess, escape hatches or something. I don't know what was going on. But Interesting. That's where uh, the comedian uh, Joey Lewis, Joey Lewis, got his throat cut by one of the mob because he'd hit on the mobster's girlfriend or something. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, well, that's harsh. This place has some history. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Cool. Well, um, what are some of your favorite recordings of yourself? I, I, I don't have a whole lot of recordings. I, I've, I've recorded quite a bit. Not much is out there. Uh, there's I love the trio we had in Wisconsin for a long time with with a pianist and drummer from from Kansas City, and I came there from uh, Kansas City to Wisconsin. Uh, Russ Long was the pianist's name, and the drummer is Charles McFarland. And Russ was a really good uh, writer. He wrote a lot of very interesting pieces. He wrote good lyrics to boot, and and wonderful feeling pianist. He had. Uh, he could swing like crazy. Very cool. A great singer, and and I that's that's one of my favorite records. I I really like that particular record. We recorded an awful lot of stuff, and this first one was done on vinyl. And it's a good sounding record. You mentioned that you <clears throat> you had a vinyl you'd like to play that's a song or two off of. That's that's what you're talking yeah. about. Cool. Should we take a pause and listen to one or two of those songs? Sure.
places of fantastic places that you and I only have known. Love the things I've known. If I could have my own, it's when you smile. The Other World, was this tune called? Yes. That's really cool. And is it a Russ original then? Yes, the lyric and the, the song itself. That's really awesome. It's What's the story behind the title? Uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. He, he said the original title was uh, Reincarnation. Now, I, uh, that may or may not make sense. Uh, uh, hmm. He thought it did. But it, it, it works on some level because it became pretty popular and recorded by a few people had pretty good success with it. Who else recorded it? Oh, a pianist singer named Judy Roberts mm -hmm. from Chicago. Did, did a nice recording of it. Hmm. And a couple other people. I can't. Th I think uh, Karen Allison has done some of Russ's songs. Oh, she might have done that one, but I'm not quite sure of that title. Okay. Well, we're going to switch gears just slightly here because um, we've heard rumors that you may have run into Miles Davis once or twice. Yeah, I have. And we were hoping to hear maybe about what that's uh, what those en encounters were like. Miles and I became really close friends on the basis of two meetings, sort of. Really? Yeah, I was when, when <laughs> I was when I was a, co a college boy. We we used to go to New York all the time and hear whomever, and we and Miles was playing at, at Birdland, so we went down to see him. And in those days, uh, you could just, if you were underage, you just don't bring it up and, and act like you belong there and nobody bother you. Besides, I had a brand new three-piece corduroy suit, and I thought I really looked sharp. So <laughs> There we go. And uh, anyway, there was a Miles Quintet with uh, with Coltrane and Philly Joe and oh, wow. Paul Chambers and Red Garland. Not a pretty good band, actually. You don't say. <laughs> and they sounded stupendous, of course, and I was awestruck. 
on that same bill was Maynard Ferguson's uh, little big band. Uh, t wow. Ten or nine or ten piece big band. Marvelous. Anyway, so that was a pretty good bill for, I think, a $3 cover charge. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Mm. As I recall. Anyway, at the end of the, of the uh, evening, we're sitting, my two roomy friends and I are sitting there, and Miles walked right by our table. And when he got within range, I said, that was beautiful music or something clever like that. I've forgotten exactly what I said. But he leaned in very closely and he says, what do you know, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> so I was impressed with that. <laughs> I said, oh, Miles must like me. <laughs> oh, boy. And my second uh, conversation with Miles <laughs> was... I was about eight, eight, nine years later in Kansas City. I went, went again, some other college friends, and I went to see him. And it was a band with uh, Hank Mobley and J.J. Johnson and Miles and Philly Joe and Wenton Kelly and Paul Chambers. Oh, wow. For what a ferocious band. band. Man. It was just, a, it was just stunning. And, and that particular night is J.J. Johnson and Philly Joe were, were, were both just on fire. It was just, they were just, I've never heard anything quite like that at all. They, they were the energy and the inspiration of the whole thing. And Miles even, is al almost like he deferred to them. They were so hot that he, that they'd, they got more time, more solo space, or whatever, and and it was like a brilliant uh, duet conversation between Philly Joe and J.J. Johnson all night long, with mm -hmm. everything else being just about equally brilliant. Anyway, it was, it was a phenomenal night, and again, my timing was good. I'm, we're leaving the place to Mardi Gras, which is a funky joint, and I, Miles was coming toward me, I'm coming toward Miles, we, and we're converging right where you had to turn to go toward the front door of the place. And sitting right at that convergence, there was this, uh, no other way to, to describe him, he was a white guy, drunken conventioneer character, as drunk as, as you, one can get. And as Miles was approaching <laughs> the place where we were going to converge, the guy reached up and grabbed Miles by his forearm and said, let me buy you a drink, Tiger. Oh and boy. Yeah, this is, and this is working out nicely, huh? And uh, <sighs> just as I arrived, Miles was drawing back with his right hand, with a fist, getting ready to give the guy a shot, not surprisingly. And I arrived right about at that second, and I just said something like, that was just the best music I ever heard, or something, something uh, gushing at him again. And he stopped in mid-punch, and he looked at me and he just cracked up laughing. He said, why, thank you, man. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't hit the guy and didn't hit me. <laughs> wow. Walked out the door. So Miles and I became friends after all. Or something. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people can say they have stories like that. That's cool. I, uh, I cherish it. <laughs> Goodness. Strange as it is. That's pretty fantastic. <sighs> it was, too, it was uh, some of the best music I ever heard in my life, both those occasions, of course. Yeah. yeah. That's really, really cool. Yeah. So well, you've been in Seattle for more than 20 years now. Yeah. Is there 
Um, what kinds of changes have you seen in the Seattle scene over the past couple decades? In the music scene, particularly, mm -hmm. it's 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 grown and just in the the musical population, the number of players, there's some awfully good players here. And I don't know where they all come from, but they sure do. It's impressive. I wish there were more viable venues. It's it's very, it's, sure. I think it's sort of sad, frankly. Uh, this, this Seattle is not exactly uh, some impoverished burg someplace that should be able to support the arts much better than they do, I think. I can second that. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, probably not much that. disagreement on that one. No, it? not from a crowd of musicians. At no, goodness no. Well, what advice would you give uh, someone starting out now, as a, say a bassist or just a, a jazz musician in general? I don't know. There, it, um, my experience again, being so much older than most folks, uh, is different. I. You know, when I first started playing, just for sure practicality of learning to play uh, with other people on some sort of reasonably professional level, I uh, started out playing with anybody that would let me, for starters, and then getting some work with uh, casual bands, as we used to call them, ca casual gigs, you know, country club gigs, mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> that sort of stuff. And there was much more of that. And also, it was much more centered around uh, the Gershwin, Cole Porter, on and on and on, uh, Richard Rogers, the mm -hmm. Great American Songbook, as people like to call it. So you, that was invaluable for learning, just learning tunes. Mm -hmm. And you also learned to uh, just the, the basics of improvisation, because you had, if you didn't know the tune, you better know it by the second chorus and to figure out a way to play it. So you, you became <laughs> very, <laughs> uh, you know, resourceful is a good word, how to get through a gig, how to, and, and a great learning experience. And I don't think that kind of experience really exists much anymore. Sort of trial by fire type learning? Yeah, really yep. And I don't know that, uh, I don't know that uh, there's much of a substitute substitution for that kind of e learning experience. You can, you can go to s schools and get all kinds of the basic things down, but you still have to go out and play. You ever heard of a pianist named you ever heard of a pianist named Peter Milich? Yeah, I don't know why though. I think he's he splits his time between uh New York and Upper Michigan. Yes, I I I I'm remembering somebody else told me about him. Yeah, I did a a longer gig at one point where he was playing piano oftentimes and he would do this thing where he would play one solo chorus of and he knew you know he knew every single song ever basically because his his dad owned a hotel in Ljubljana yes, I have heard about this guy and so he grew up playing bass in the hotel band uh, but then switched to piano and is an amazing pianist but he would play one chorus of whatever song we were playing he would never announce the song or tell us what we were playing at all and he would just say, follow my pinky, you know. We'd play the uh -huh. first chorus, and uh, and then we'd play the song. <laughs> and that, that's how it worked every night for like a month and a half in a row. And uh, the bassist got a workout. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> sure. I'm sure. Well, I, I, I played, uh, when I had my own trio in, in, in Lake Geneva, I had various pianists come and sub there, one of whom was, uh, was uh, Melvin Ryan, the great... Hammond organ player. He was marvelous and a lot of fun. But this guy, John Weber, 
who's been in New York for many years, was lived in Milwaukee, and um, he had a phenomenal repertoire, just every song known to man. But he insisted on playing everything in totally peculiar keys, no no original keys. He he would play in sharp keys, and mm -hmm. just <laughs> drive you nuts. I said, John, give it a rest once in a while. <laughs> but it was uh, on the other hand, it was a nice exercise. So. Yeah, people do strange things. Would he give you prior warning, or would he just make you figure? No, he'd just say we're going to play uh, whatever it is, and uh, I'd like to do this one in E, or maybe I'd like to do this one in key of B, or whatever. Cool. So off we went. It's the best way. Well, I think that's about uh, all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really, definitely appreciate your time. Thank and you your for stories. inviting me. I enjoyed it. Thank very you, much. Michael. Um, if you enjoyed listening today, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and you can find our podcast anywhere you find podcasts, including Stitcher, iTunes, etc. And yeah, signing off for today.